Father, we praise you and thank you for your goodness to us. We seek you for your transformation, that you would change us into the people you want us to be, that we might bring you glory and make a true difference in this world. So teach us about this now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you're probably wondering, uh, oh, by the way, turn to Zechariah chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 14, page 540 in the Bibles that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Zechariah verse by verse, and we're at this section, revival transforms us. So you're probably wondering, why do I have toys on the stage? Well, if you've been coming to this church very long at all, you're probably not wondering. <laughs> because, okay, <laughs> you know, what's he going to say this time? Okay. Uh, Transformers, right? So some cars are content in just being a car, right? But some cars want to go further. Dun, 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 dun. And they transform into... The, this is actually the, the bumblebee, but I'm not sure why he's black instead of yellow. This guy's the better one right there. But you got the point, right? You probably think, no, we don't have the point. Here's the deal. Are you just satisfied with your Christian walk? Thank you. Okay. I was a little worried there. Right. You were thinking, no, I just want to be a car. All right. Okay, are you satisfied with your Christian walk or do you long for a deeper experience of God where your life is truly changed, noticeable by others even? Uh, radical transformation is normal Christianity. Now, it's not average Christianity, sadly, but it is normal Christianity according to the Bible. You could see, look up 2 Corinthians 3.18 and it will bring that out. So radical transformation, that's what God wants to do. Now in our passage, we see what transformation looks like and how revival transforms us together, ultimately into the image of Christ, okay? So I want to start out and I want to read the first seven verses and then see the context of the chapter, and then we'll read the second half after, uh, later. So Zechariah 7, verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer, Regamelech, and their men to plead for the Lord's favor. By asking the priests who were at the house of the Lord of armies, as well as the prophets, should we mourn and fast in the fifth month as we have done these many years? Then the word of the Lord of armies came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and lamented in the fifth and in the seventh months for these 70 years, do you really fast for me? When you eat and drink, don't you eat and drink simply for yourselves? Aren't these the words that the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and secure, along with its surrounding cities and when the southern region and the Judean foothills were inhabited? So what's going on here, okay? 
As you remember, as we've been going through Zechariah, we're seeing that the people of God, they were exiled up to Babylon because of their sin. Uh, God used the Babylonians to wipe out the, the, the temple in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. They were exiled up to Babylon for 70 years. They've been allowed to return now under Cyrus and their home, and they're supposed to see, you're supposed to wait on that one just a second. That's actually going to come in really good for my point here in just a moment, okay? All right, so just hold on there a little bit, Lord. But anyway, so they're returning, and they're back in their home, and they're rebuilding the temple, and so things seem to be going in the right direction. And so these, this group of people came from Bethel to ask him, should we continue the fast? They were fasting during uh, the time that they were in exile, uh, fasting for seeking the Lord. You know, we're in exile, we're seeking the Lord, and so now that they're back to building the temple, they're asking, should we fast? Should we continue to fast? Now, the first point that we want to look at in verses 1 through 3, revival transforms us from fasting to feasting. Now, we see that, actually, we're going to see that in the first three verses, but in the context of all of chapter 7 and chapter 8, because as you notice, God didn't answer the question. Should we continue fasting? He doesn't answer the question. He doesn't answer the question until chapter 8, verses 18 through 23. So you're going to have to wait for the answer, okay, on that one. Because he wants to deal with some stuff in their hearts first before he even addresses that question, okay? So, but what we want to understand when we see the whole big picture, revival transforms us from fasting to feasting, okay? Uh, the temple. Now, he mentioned these 70 years they've been doing this fast in commemoration. Uh, in the seventh month, that's when, or the, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, uh, the fifth month, that's in commemoration, 586 B.C. in the fifth month is when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, okay? And so, should they continue this fast? Now, I want to say, first of all, that their motive was good in part, all right? Uh, and we see this specifically, especially in the prayer. Uh, verse 2, these people, this group, they come, and it says, and their men plead for the Lord's favor, okay? That literally means to entreat the face of Yahweh. So they want to seek the Lord. They want to come into the presence of God and ask him for his favor. Basically, what they're wanting is, okay, we've been fasting because we were being punished for our sins. We're repenting of our sins. We're seeking you now, God. It seems like you're beginning to answer. Will you please show up and bring back, return the blessing of having your presence with us and the amazing, mighty things that you've done in our midst that we know of from the past. So he's basically saying, they're praying, do it again, God. That's their prayer, okay? We've heard of the great things in the past. Do it again, God. This is a prayer that we see throughout the Old Testament, okay? So I want you to look at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2 first. We'll see, that's just to the left a little bit, Okay. Habakkuk 3, verse 2, we see a, a kind of a similar prayer here uh, in light of, he's speaking in light of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. 
Uh, so it's before Zechariah's time. And he says this. He says, Lord, I've heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. Now, that's a great way to pray. pray. And so we're going to see in these verses that we're looking up here ways in which we can cry out to God as well. But notice here, he's saying, I've heard about what you did in the past. Do it again, God. (laughs) Is that a good prayer or what? Right? Do it again, God. Make yourself known. Uh, In your wrath, please remember mercy. Look at Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 4. Another example of this kind of praying. Isaiah says, if only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that mountains would quake at your presence. Okay, now. Oh, I don't. (laughs) That would have been a good time, Lord. All right. Just as fire kindles brushwood and fire boils water to make your name known to your enemies so that nations would tremble at your presence when you did awesome works that we did not expect you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. Notice his prayer here. Lord, come down. We've heard of your awesome works You come down, make the the mountains quake, make the enemy run in fear. Lord God, come and do it again. That's what we see in this prayer. Look at Psalm 77, verse 14. The Psalms are great examples on how to pray, at least how the ancient Israelites prayed. And here he says in Psalm 77, 14, you are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples. You are the God who works wonders. Look at Psalm 145, 3 through 7. Here he says, the Lord is great and is highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. The NIV says no one can fathom. One generation will declare your works to the next and will proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your splendor and glorious majesty and your wondrous works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring acts and I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Notice here he's praying, Lord, you're great. Your wondrous works, your awe-inspiring acts. Lord, you're the one who can do this. Do it again. Jeremiah 32, verse 20. Jeremiah was writing. He's the one that actually predicted that their exile would be for 70 years. And sure enough, it was exactly 70 years. So this is just before the exile. This is how he prayed. Jeremiah 32, 20. You performed signs and wonders in the land of Egypt and still do today, both in Israel and among all mankind. You made a name for yourself, as is the case 
today. Yes, God is the God who did the signs and wonders in Egypt, but he still does them today. By the way, this is still true. God still does his wondrous works today. And so we ask him, Lord, do it again. This is a great prayer for revival. And I think their motives were good. They're asking to restore, to revive, okay? By the way, in order to be revived, you have to first have been vived, right? That's an important point. The word vive means life, okay? You have to be first born again, where you come to Christ, you repent of your sins, you place your faith in Christ and him alone for your salvation. You outwardly express that faith in baptism. You're born again. You've become a Christian because we're not born Christians, okay? You have to have that moment where you are truly born again. You become a Christian, and you all remember that, right? You remember when you became a Christian and then your life not necessarily got got uh, every all the problems got fixed but your life you got to experience the presence of God and you and it was wow, wonderful right do you remember okay you know i mean you could just think back in your at times in your life it was like oh man i can't that was such a wonderful time right okay and so but sometimes do you just kind of cool off a little bit you know it's like it becomes a little i don't know whatever okay well, that's what praying to be revived is. Lord, I remember when you changed my life. I remember when you did these awesome, incredible things. Do it again. Revive me. Help my heart to be on fire for you again. Okay? So that's the prayer. And so I think they're, they're asking that. They're, they want to bring back the days when God was present in their midst and experienced the greatness of the Lord. But... Their hearts needed adjusted. What we'll see in the rest, we see it in verses four through seven, but in the rest of the chapter as well, what we see is God, before he even answers that question about fasting, he has, his, he has to address their hearts. Uh, this is a prerequisite to revival. You have to address the sin in your heart. And, uh, and so, in fact, Isaiah 58 is a similar chapter on fasting. It says true fasting is when your life is transformed. If you're just going through the motions, that's not going to make any difference at all. In fact, it's not good. Okay, And so we want to see that their hearts needed adjusting. George Klein in his commentary, he says, the people obtained no simple response to their original question about fasting. The reply the Lord gave them required profound spiritual introspection to obtain the appropriate answer. Profound spiritual introspection. We need to examine our hearts. And so they, their hearts needed adjusted, and that's where we come to verses 4 through 7, where we see that revival transforms us from serving ourselves to serving God. Okay? Uh, this is where they got stuck in a rut, so to speak. The question, what's in it for me, is the wrong question. Now, I understand, and we all ask it, you know, right? Because we're, we're all basically selfish people. What's in it for me? But that is the wrong 
question, and we need to recognize this. Um, Klein, once again, he says, a practice that began, he's speaking of fasting, a practice that began in mourning and self-denial had degenerated into a religious activity performed merely out of self-interest. So a religious activity performed merely out of self-interest. And so we have to get our focus off ourselves. What we see in verse 5 is that God's kingdom is our priority. It says this. This is the Lord of the Army's response. Ask the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and lamented in the fifth and seventh months, so the fifth month is the month that they recognized uh, the destruction of, of Jerusalem in the temple. The seventh month is when Gedaliah, the governor, was killed. And so they, they had actually had two fasts. So he's addressing two fasts. They were only asking about one. So when you fasted and lamented in the fifth and seventh months for these 70 years, did you really fast for me? They didn't. It was about themselves. God's kingdom is our priority. Jesus said this, Matthew 6, 33. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Okay? If you seek first all the things, you don't get them. But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God's kingdom is advanced when people are set free. Okay. First of all, when people switch kingdoms, like I said, we're not born in the kingdom of God. Okay, We're all born apart from God. And so what we need to recognize here is that when we help somebody come to Christ and they switch kingdoms, they're born again, that the kingdom of God is advanced. Okay, So we're seeking to help people come to Christ. But also, people, when people are set free, uh, simply uh, through uh, when, when they're freed from the oppression of the enemy. That could be healing. That could be deliverance from bondage, okay? That could be knowledge of the truth. These are things that set people free from the bondages, okay? So that's also advancing the kingdom of God. So we're helping people holistically in this way, okay? But God's kingdom is our priority rather than ourselves. And that was the problem that they had faced, okay? Did you really fast for me? No. Then verse 6, when you eat and drink, don't you eat and drink simply for yourselves. Uh, so we see, secondly, we won't be happy when we seek our own happiness. That was their problem. They were doing these things really, ultimately, for themselves, uh, seeking their own happiness. Jesus taught this principle, Luke 9, 23 and 24. I want you to turn there. Uh, in Luke 9, this is how Jesus proclaimed the gospel. And he made a profound statement. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. That's the opposite of seeking your happiness, isn't it? Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. 
if we seek to save our lives, we seek our own happiness, we lose it. We don't get it. But if we lose our life for his sake, we gain it. It's not wrong to want to be happy. We all want to be happy, right? It's not wrong to want to be happy. It's how are we seeking our happiness. If we seek our happiness, we end up not getting it. But if we seek the Lord and seek to put him first, you're the happiest, aren't you? It it sounds like an upside-down principle, but it works because it's God's principle here. And so that was where they needed their hearts adjusted in recognizing this, okay? Uh, So revival transforms us from serving ourselves to serving God. And then verse 7, God simply reminds them of when things were going well. Aren't these the words that the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and secure, along with its surrounding cities and when the southern region and the Judean foothills were inhabited. When things were going well, all of Israel was inhabited, uh, but they were sinning, and so the earlier prophets went to, rem- to call them to repent, but they didn't, okay? So here he's reminding them, you need to first repent. Get your focus on God first. Now, verses 8 through 14 is then a call to repentance. Let's look at it, verses 8 through 14. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. The Lord of armies says this, make fair decisions, show faithful love and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the resident, resident alien or the poor, and do not plot evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder. They closed their ears so they could not hear. They made their hearts like a rock so as not to obey the law or the words that the Lord of armies had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. Therefore, intense anger came from the Lord of armies. Just as he had called and they would not listen, so when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord of armies. I scattered them with a windstorm over all the nations that had not known them, and the land was left desolate behind them with no one coming or going. They turned a pleasant land into a desolation. Desolation. Now here we see, first of all, in verses 8 through 10, that revival transforms us from pursuing religion to practicing righteousness. You see, the religion that he's addressing here, the formalism of the fast that had just become a religious activity for them. It wasn't a true seeking the Lord anymore, okay? That that religion is not good. So he's saying, no, it has to change you. You're supposed to be transformed into people who live out righteousness. Now, the first thing I want to say about this is that religion stinks. Uh, Now, Sometimes in the Bible, it does speak of religion with that word in a positive sense. So James 1, 27, it says, true religion is this, that uh, you take care of the widows and orphans and that you seek to live a holy life, okay? So there is a sense in which religion is good, but most of the time when we use that word, put quotations and marks around it, religion 
stinks. It's that going through the formality, a bunch of rituals and man-made rules, this is what Jesus condemned in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. He actually speaks out against religion in that sense, the ritualism, etc. Um, we can get caught up in religion even today, and we want to be careful of that. I think of the worship service, which is, you know, from the beginning to end when we gather together, okay, the worship service. If we go back to the early church, when you look at the early church in the book of Acts, how they worshiped God, their worship service, okay, uh, it was very informal but life-giving. That's what the early church services were like, informal, life-giving, there was no liturgy and formality, no incense or going through the motions. Uh, uh, so many people there, you know, today there's kind of a new fad. We want to go back to the ancient church is the term they use. And what they mean by that is the medieval age. So they got their candles and the incense and this and that. It's like, no, go back further, okay? Go back to the original church. That's where there was no ritualism, no Basically, in the church service, in the early church, the pastor preached the Bible, they sang songs, they prayed, they fellowshiped, and they practiced the two sacraments of the Lord's Supper and Baptism. And that was it, okay? It was that simple. That's the early church service. Then, after they had finished gathering together, they went out and shared their faith and lived out their faith. That was the early church, okay? At Harvest, we want to help you follow Jesus and introduce him to others. It's that simple, okay? That simple. We want to help you follow Jesus and share him with others. Christianity is not religion. It is a relationship that we do together with God that is supposed to make a difference in our life, okay? Um, so religion stinks, but righteousness rocks, right? <laughs> That's what he's bringing out here. Live out this righteousness. He says, make fair decisions. And he says, true justice. Show faithful love and compassion to one another. Uh, compassion, forgive each other. That was something that uh, they really focused on in the discipleship training in uh, the Ivory Coast this, this time was they talked about forgiveness and some people really came, some people got, even got saved over this, okay? So this was a remarkable statement here. We have to be compassionate people, forgiving people. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the resident alien or the poor, and do not plot evil in your hearts against one another. As we see throughout the scriptures, as I mentioned before, Isaiah 58, when it talks about a true fast, a true fast makes a difference in your life where you're reaching out, especially to the people who are down and out, especially to the people who cannot help themselves. We're supposed to be people who really care about the poor. That's what we see throughout the scriptures. Okay, uh, interesting, Paul, when he talked to Peter and the other apostles, he says, they agreed with everything I was saying, but the one thing they told me was, remember the poor. And he says, of which, I, of course, I was wanting to hear. I want to hear that. 
We see this in Psalm 140. We see this in the Proverbs. Now, I do want to say this. There is a right way and a wrong way to help the poor. And we can, we can disagree a little bit on what are the specifics. But just as long as we, we do have a heart that wants to help the, the oppressed and the people who are in need. So he's calling us, help the poor. Now, let me speak about that the wrong way, okay? I believe, personally, in our country at least, the welfare system has failed. Giving people a bunch of free stuff didn't work, okay? That system failed because they failed to recognize something from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, okay? 2 Thessalonians, Paul said this. He says, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. Okay, that is a basic principle. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say if a man cannot work, if a person cannot work, we need to take care of them. But if a person won't work, then you're not helping them by giving them free stuff. Okay? So, so we need to have a holistic understanding of how to help people. We help people. First of all, we do need to meet their needs. If someone's in need, especially if it's a crisis, we need to meet their needs if we can, right? But we also, in that, need to help them work. You see, work is actually good for us. It, we were created to produce. We're supposed to work, and it's harmful to us to, uh, to not take part in that. So we need to help them work and also share Christ with them. If, if we meet their needs and even get them a job, but then we don't share Christ with them, they're taken care of, and then what happens? They go to hell. That's not good, right? We need to think of the whole person. So we meet their needs, help them work, share Christ with them. The worst thing, though, and this is the point we want to see, especially from this passage, the worst thing is indifference. To not care about the hurting, the poor, etc. Um, Elizabeth and I, uh, in Florida, when we lived there before we had kids, we took in a homeless man to live with us. We met him. He was eating pizza out of a dumpster behind a pizza hut. And I said, would you like to come home and live with us? And so he did. Came home. We cleaned him up, gave him clothes, but I also discipled him. I taught him how to find a job. Actually helped him get a job. So he got a job. He started working. Uh, he was a little skeptical about working because he said, you know what? If I start working, because even though he's homeless, he actually got a paycheck for Social Security somehow because he was a little slower than some people. Okay, So he somehow got a mental disability or something like that. He says, if I start working, they'll take away my paycheck. And I told him, I said, listen, we were created to work. You're never going to be satisfied if you're just taking money. You want to you get off of that broken system. And so he did. And he, he came to Christ. He then uh, met his future wife. They got married. Uh, and and they're, they're, seeking, they're living for the Lord. That's a good thing, right? So we need to care about these people, but holistically take care of them. That's what he's saying here. Righteousness rocks, okay? Now, he finishes up in verses 11 through 14. Revival softens hardened hearts. Now, if you remember, he said here, 
uh, in verse 11, but they refused to pay attention, and then three things he mentions, and turned a stubborn shoulder, they closed their ears so they could not hear, and they made their hearts like a rock so as not to obey the law or the words that the Lord of armies had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So they turned a stubborn shoulder. I'm not going to listen to you, God. They closed their ears. Be quiet. They didn't. You know, if you don't open the book, that's like closing your ears, right? This is God's word to us, okay? So they closed their ears so they wouldn't listen, and then they made their hearts like a rock. Now, whenever you hear of this idea of um, hardening of hearts, what do you think about? Pharaoh, right? And in fact, usually when you think about Pharaoh, when it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, you then think, boy, that doesn't sound fair, right? Right, okay. So, though I don't have time to go into this in great detail. I'll give you the scriptures, and you can go into great detail on it. I want to speak of the development of a hardened heart, okay? So if you were to look at, first of all, the Exodus passages that talk about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart, okay? Specifically says, some of the passages say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I can't see people, okay? God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But some of the passages say, his heart was hardened. It doesn't say how it got hardened. And then some of the passages actually say Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So the question is, which came first? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart first and God said, fine, I'll use you anyway? And he did by displaying his 10 plagues and bringing glory to his name. Or did God harden his heart first and then he just naturally Hardened his own heart. Which came first, okay? It's a legitimate question, right? Well, our passage seems to indicate we harden our own hearts first. But 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 11, specifically states we harden our own hearts first, then God says, okay, fine, I'll use you for my glory even if you continue to choose to sin. So he doesn't want us to have hard hearts, Okay, and by the way, he doesn't actually zap us either, you know? And that's where the Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28 brings out. It's not God actively going, you know, hard heart, no. You know, even if it's after you harden your own heart, no. He just, it says he gave them over. Three times it says that. He gave them over. He just takes his hands off. So it's a passive hardening. So when you choose to harden your heart, Eventually, he takes his hands off and says, fine, go your way. But if he takes his hands off and he's the only hope you have, what hope do you have? You don't want to get to this spot, right? So, he saw, so but by the way, this is fair, isn't it? He's not zapping people. And that's how we're to understand what happened even to Pharaoh. God knew that Pharaoh was not going to listen, and he was going to use him anyway for his glory, to display his glory uh, in, in the ten plagues and then the parting of the Red Sea, etc. All right. So what we see here is the development of a hardened heart and then the result of a hardened heart. And that's where the rest of the verses describe how they didn't experience the blessing of the Lord. They instead experienced punishment from God the pleasant land became a desolation. 
is how it ends. So that's the result of a hardened heart. That's no good. But this is implied, and we know this because God is calling them to repentance. It's implied that if you soften your heart, then the opposite happens. Then if you soften your heart, you begin to obey the Lord. You begin to hear the voice of the Lord. It becomes clear, and you experience his blessing. That's the reason. We know that this is implied because they do repent. And this is the beauty of Zechariah and Haggai, those two books in, that are talking about the same time period, is that people actually listen to the prophets who call them to repentance, and they experience the revival and the blessing of the Lord. Okay? So this is a good thing. Let your heart be softened. I have a, a good friend, David, lives in Colorado. Before I met him, he was in the Vietnam War. And when he came out of the war, he, uh, his description was he was a bitter, angry person. Really angry. And then he got saved. Switched kingdoms. Started following Jesus. But he also still struggled, and so he went for prayer. He went to the prayer room all the time, any chance he could get. It's what he called soaking prayer. He would ask people, please pray for me. I'm still struggling with my anger. I need, I know God can deliver me. He can soften me. He can change me. He can transform me. And so he received prayers and prayers and prayers up to the point when I met him, David was the most gentle person I've ever met. Absolutely, and if you asked his wife, zero problems with anger. Totally transformed. Do you believe God can do that? Of course. If we simply turn to him with a softened heart of repentance, he will transform whatever bondage we find ourselves in. Klein concludes. He says, the chapter concludes far from where it began. The pilgrims came from a distance seeking clarification on a relatively minor religious matter. To their surprise, they did not initially receive an answer to the question they posed. Instead, the leaders and the nation they represented suffered a brutally frank accusation concerning their legalistic, sinful attitudes toward the Lord and his requirements for their hearts and lives. Implicit in God's indictment was the threat that what had happened to the pre-exilic community would occur again in the post-exilic epoch if the people of the covenant refused to repent. But by the grace of God, they did repent, which is awesome. Now, this is a rebuke, but it is a rebuke with the result of transformation. Transformation is normal Christianity. This is what we should be expecting as we seek God for revival. Revival brings transformation. Revival is the transformation first of the individual, then of the whole church, then of the community, and then even of the nation. That's what we're seeking, okay? Okay, <laughs> let's pray. Lord, we confess our sin. None of us are perfect yet. 
there's areas in our life that we invite you even now to speak to us. We are open to correction. Please convict our hearts and help us be quick to repent because we want revival. We long for you to do it again, to stretch out your hand and heal the sick, to change people's lives in such a way that addictions are broken off in a moment, that lives would be changed and people would truly experience the joy and happiness that you want them to have because they're seeking you instead of themselves. Lord, come, do it again. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.